This is the word of the Lord from Job 1, 17 through 22. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Hello, I'm Pastor Jason. It's my privilege this morning to open the word of God with you as we continue on in our Job study. Today we're we're looking at Job chapter 1, verse 13, through Job chapter 2, verse 10. You've already heard a portion of that read. And so, today, here we are at the middle of June, and it was about this time of year, 27 years ago, that I started my first real summer job. The first get up early every morning, even though I was out of school and work hard all day kind of job. I was working for my eighth grade history teacher slash football coach, and he ran a landscaping business during the summer months, and I was his physical laborer that summer between middle school and high school. The year was 1993. June in West Tennessee, where I grew up, is quite a bit different from June here in the Pacific Northwest. The temperatures are in the 90s each day, and the weather is humid. If it rains, which happened rarely, the rain didn't last long, and it only made it more humid and more miserable. I still remember that first day on the job. I didn't know what I was getting into. My boss picked me up that morning, and behind his truck, he was pulling a large trailer loaded down with thick black mulch. It was my first ever experience with mulch. I spent hours that day in the heat and humidity uh, and the sun beating down on me, and I was buried up to my shoulders in mulch, spreading it by hand around bushes and shrubs and plants. I thought that day would never end. And I thought my sense of smell would never be the same again. But it did end. And the next morning, I got up and went to work again and again and again all week and all summer. Why did I do that? Many of my classmates enjoyed a leisurely summer, and I chose hard work. What made me willing to go through that? 
The answer is simple. A paycheck. I was learning what all of us learn as we grow up. We can form our lives to a certain behavior called work in order to earn a wage. This transaction of trading work for income is a key part of the economies all over the world and throughout history. You might be asking, what does this have to do with Job? Well, last week we learned that the Satan, the accuser, brought a charge against Job. The charge said, does Job fear God for nothing? The accusation against Job was that his serving God could be reduced down to much like what my working for my high school football coach was like. It was reducible down to a transactional relationship. In other words, the accusation was that Job is only faithful to God because God blesses and protects Job. We heard the first week about the incredible ways that God had blessed Job. Job had immense wealth. He lived in physical comfort. And he had a large, seemingly loving family. According to the accuser, if God would but remove the protection and take away the blessings, Job would turn his back on God. What followed were two rounds of a challenge put by the accuser toward God. In the first round, which we read a portion of just a moment ago, in chapter 1, that round resulted in the tragic loss of Job's children, his wealth, and his servants. The second round, found in chapter 2, includes the loss of his health and physical comfort. So before we explore too far into how Job responded to these losses, we need to turn that same question from the accuser toward our own hearts. Do we serve God for nothing? Have we reduced our relationship with God to a series of transactions where we hold up our end of the deal and expect God to hold up his end? Do we expect God to reward our faithfulness with blessing? And protection? Do we expect God to answer our prayers because we have avoided sin or participated in religious rituals or done good deeds for others? Do we live as if we have earned a place of protection because of the good we have done or the righteous way we've lived? In short, do we serve God because He blesses us. There are versions of this transactional approach to God in both the secular, unbelieving world and within certain spheres of modern Christianity. We are in danger of adopting these tendencies from either source if we're not careful to guard our hearts and tune them to sound theology. 
In the secular world, we see the most explicit examples of attempting to turn God into a servant of the individual. Bargaining with God is a prime example of this. In bargaining with God, the individual abandons any pretense of serving God when life is good, but feels that they keep God on the hook by claiming to believe in God, even while rejecting biblical understandings of both God and belief. Then, when the individual faces difficulty or tragedy or an insurmountable challenge, they can call on God for help, feeling that God is bound by this superficial relationship and he must help them. We sometimes see this type of behavior played for laughs in movies. One example depicted a man overboard, lost at sea, certain to drown. He began to call out to God for help. And he he started by confessing his sins and, and committing to turn his back on his evil ways. He began to promise to live for God if God would but rescue him. As he swam, he promised to follow the Ten Commandments. And so he began to recite the Ten Commandments that he was going to follow. But he soon found out that he could only name two or three of the commandments. So he promised that the first thing you would do upon being rescued by God would be to learn the Ten Commandments and then to follow them. Feeling the desperation of his, of his situation, he promised God that he, if God would get him to safety, uh, the man would devote 50% of his future earnings to God. He pointed out to God that no one else ever gave 50% of their income and that this surely should set the man apart for God's favor. As he began to draw nearer to the shore, he began to reduce his commitments to God and dropped the percentage of his earnings. Then uh, he even began to exclude certain of his illicit revenue streams from the bargain. And just before he reached safety, the man had reduced his commitment of income down to 10%. And just as he stepped onto dry land, the man ceased to talk to God altogether. And so all this, although this was played for comedic effect, it, it serves to be an example of a pattern that we can observe in many lives, bargaining with God. Now, within church circles, you see a, a variety of more subtle and nuanced forms of transactional relationships with God. Take the prosperity gospel. At its core, the prosperity gospel claims that it is always God's plan for the believer to live in financial success, to be healthy, and to achieve personal victory. All it takes is faith, prayer, and giving money to the church or to the religious leader. Then one can expect God to act on your behalf. The Word of Faith movement is closely related to the prosperity gospel. In this version, one can make bold claims on the promises of the scripture, often ignoring their context and simply speak new reality into existence. Faith, 
plus the power of the spoken word, they bind God into delivering your desires, according to the Word of Faith movement. And then there are many groups and individuals who hold to various forms of works-based salvation. This is also a transactional approach to God, in which God has set a certain standard of religious works or holy behavior or avoiding certain sins. And for those that achieve that standard, salvation is rewarded. These are just a few examples out of many. Dennis Prager wrote in his book, Think a Second Time. He wrote these words, I have come to realize that many religious people believe that they should be able to avoid the calamities that afflict the less pious. They believe, in effect, that they can make a deal with God. I'll do what you want so that you do what I want. You may have some version of a transactional approach to God in your heart or life. Have you ever had any of these thoughts? If I please God by doing the right things or avoiding sin, then God will bless me. Or I prayed to God to heal me or to heal someone I love, but healing did not come. Therefore, God must not love me or I must have done something wrong. Here's another thought you might have had. This terrible tragedy has happened in my family and now I don't think I want to serve God anymore. I'm not even sure that I still believe in him. Maybe you've thought this. As I contemplate my death, I fear that I have not done enough good things to be able to enter heaven. Any of these thoughts might be an indication you're approaching God from a a transactional uh, uh, mindset. So having a transactional approach to God is deadly to true faith. Instead, it produces a superficial quasi-faith built on a shifting, weak foundation rather than on the solid foundation of God's truth. When tragedy strikes or life gets hard, this kind of superficial faith will crack and crumble. Where genuine faith focuses on God and his worthiness, this kind of faith that we're talking about is a self-centered faith that indulges wrong understandings of God and his purposes. Furthermore, this approach it entices the heart to treasure and pursue safety, comfort, success, health, instead of pursuing God. This was the accusation that was being leveled against Job, that he loved not God, but the blessings that God provided, that he didn't truly fear God, he feared the removal of God's protection over his life. Let's pause in our consideration of Joe for just a minute and ask, is it wrong to draw a connection between serving God and receiving blessings? 
I would say not at all. The Bible repeatedly makes it clear that to live in alignment with God's design is the best way to live. The result of such living brings blessings an overwhelming majority of the time. Conversely, to live in active rebellion against God's design brings negative consequences most of the time as well. For instance, we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Psalm 145, verses 18 through 20. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. One more. Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. So these verses and others in the Bible point to a general truth about how God rules the created order. In general, God blesses those who live according to his expressed design. However, this principle has its limits and does not encapsulate all of God's working or his purposes. It's easy to take this principle we just talked about. God blesses those who love and serve God. It's easy to take that principle and give it too much weight and even build an entire theological system around it. In Israel, it had become common to believe that if good things happened to someone, it meant that they were pleasing God. And if bad things befell someone, they had angered God. This belief was apparent even in Jesus' day. In John chapter 9, When Jesus and his disciples encountered a man born blind, Jesus used that scenario to challenge this wrong belief. Verse 1 says that as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they're thinking. He was born blind, therefore someone must have sinned, and God was angry and punished that sin. Jesus answers, though, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. And Jesus went on to heal him, and it was a big moment in the community and led to several encounters following that. We can also see in the scripture that there are many times when a godly individual doesn't get blessed, but rather suffers severely. And also when an evil person doesn't receive God's judgment right away, instead they prosper. The Psalms 
questioned this several times, this injustice of how the wicked flourish while the righteous suffer. In Psalm 73, there's a lengthy description of how the wicked were becoming fat with the wealth gained by violence. This led those evil individuals to arrogantly say, God does not even see what we are doing. And it caused the author of that psalm then to question his own faith in God. Only for a moment. The psalm is overwhelmingly uplifting. But he he confesses that when he saw the prospering of the evil, he, he checked his own heart. He said, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. We can also look for an example in the life of the patriarch Joseph. He was faithful to God and yet suffered years of injustice and a lifetime of separation from his family and his homeland. And then, of course, we have Job's terrible suffering as he loses his children and his wealth and his comfort and his health. So we come to this more complex truth. God generally blesses those who love him, but sometimes asks his people to walk through very difficult circumstances. And so a robust faith is required to live in that reality. A faith that does not superficially focus on the blessing but seeks to know and worship the God who is worthy, independent of the blessing. And this faith is put on display when we suffer. How we respond when we suffer shows what we truly believe. And so now we turn back to Job for Job's response. Job, having suffered tremendous losses, losses that most of us could not even begin to imagine, he responds then, all in the context of this challenge, he responds to his suffering. And what was his response? What was revealed about the belief that was uh, in the heart of Job? Belief about who God is and his relationship with God? After the first wave of loss, the loss that took his children, his possessions and wealth, and even his servants. Job stood up. Verse, this is chapter 1, verse 20. Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Those were both uh, signs of deep mourning. Shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was after the first wave of loss. Then after he was afflicted with a painful disease, and his health was taken away, his comfort was taken away, in Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, Job's wife comes to him. And says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. 
And Job responds to her, exposing his heart in the midst of suffering. He said, uh, he said to his wife, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. We're going to have an opportunity, multiple opportunities in the future weeks to delve into the, the depths of Job's suffering and the unfathomable emotions that came out during that suffering. But right now, we want to understand how Job could remain faithful in those days of suffering. How could he face loss after loss and still love and fear God? Job's faith was not superficially based on the blessings of God. His faith was deeply rooted on the truth that while God's glory is displayed in his goodness to his people, God is worthy of worship even when the blessings are removed. Job's heart could face tragedy because he knew that God is worthy. God is worthy of our worship in our prosperity And God is worthy of our worship in our suffering. Nothing that could happen to Job could change the fact that God is worthy. And because God is worthy, Job could trust God and follow him down any path, no matter how difficult. Whether the Lord gives or takes away, whether God is giving good or adversity, Job was willing to follow God because God is worthy. Can we say the same thing? Can we say that we trust God and will follow him no matter what path he leads us down? Do we believe that God is worthy of our prosperity and of our suffering? I find this question helpful as I probe my own heart on these matters. Is the story of my life primarily about me? Or is the story of my life primarily about God? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that we're each seeking a treasure. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. God is our greatest treasure. When we treasure him above all else, we can lose everything and still have inestimable wealth. Let's make a gospel connection here. You see, we have some advantages that Job did not have when it comes to trusting God. Job lived, as we saw in the first week of our study, Job lived in a time of no covenant. We also saw that the original audience of the book of Job lived in the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant time. But we now, we live in the time of the new covenant of Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are brought into a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have God indwelling 
within us and promising to walk with us no matter what we face. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the Holy Spirit is with us to guide us and comfort us and strengthen us to face what lies ahead. Whatever path is laid out for us to walk, if we've put our faith in Jesus, we do not walk alone. Are you trusting in Jesus as your Savior? If you've yet to put faith in Jesus, today can be the day that you believe and are made new and brought into this new relationship with God. Confess your sin. Put your faith in Jesus and follow him beginning right now. Then no matter what path God leads you down, you will not walk alone. Now let's think about how we can apply today's truths from Job to our lives. So in other words, here's some action steps. First of all, I think it's helpful to see Job's reaction and to immediately look at our lives and probe our own hearts and lives. To ask questions, and give honest answers. Ask ourselves questions like, am I living for myself or am I living for God? What have I seen in my heart when I have faced hardship? Am I offended when God doesn't answer my prayers the way I wish? How would I respond if I knew that God was leading me down a path of profound suffering. Those kinds of questions, if we answer them honestly, they will expose our heart. Then we invite God to work on us, work on me, and primarily help me, Lord, make God, make you my treasure. And not simply to focus on the blessings, the gifts you give, the, the protection. You see, when we enjoy the blessings of God, we can make sure that we distinguish in our hearts that the giver of the gift is of far more value than the gift itself. We can enjoy the blessings of God as an act of worship of the one who gives the blessing. Now, I want to say another aspect of application, and specifically to fathers. Now, now this is true for mothers too, but we happen to, to be at Father's Day weekend. So I wanted to say just a quick word and, and with a hint toward fathers. We fathers get to, to model this way of thinking and living for our children. We can show them when we face struggles and adversity, we can show our daughters and our sons that God is the one we seek and that we trust him and worship him in good times, in hard times, in bad times, we trust and worship God because he is worthy. We can talk to our children about disappointments and suffering and loss because they are going to face these things too. As much as we want to protect them from that, they will face these. And they need to see us live out this kind of Job-modeled trust and worship of God no matter what we face. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you you have shown yourself worthy in countless ways. Would you expose in our heart the times that we approach you in a transactional matter 
trying to, uh, to hold you to some bargain that even you have not made, but instead to help us to look past the blessings that you lovingly give to your people and the protection you provide. Look past that and see you as our treasure. Would you touch our hearts? And even those that might be listening or watching that have yet to put faith in Jesus, would you move on their hearts? that They would want to make you their treasure by coming to you through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, prepare us for whatever path you would lead us down, whether that's a path of prosperity or of difficulty. We trust you. We want to follow you. Would you make that true in our hearts, that our lives bear that out, Help us never forget, you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name.